Radical Change has been the, the series title. Um, we were you know, thinking about this months ago and about the, what it would be like to zero in on, on the, the moment where Saul of Tarsus had his life radically altered, where he, he goes from being the preeminent persecutor of the early church, the, the beginning of the movement of, as the followers of Jesus were known as the way, the way of Jesus. And he, he becomes radically altered by an experience that we talked about last week, the Damascus Road moment where he meets the risen Christ. And that changes everything. And, uh, but, but we're going to look at that, that moment between sort of where he was and where he was going, this interval moment. I'm going to have a start by reading from the uh, verses that we reviewed last week. Acts 9, 1 through 8. If you have your Bible, you can follow with me. The, the handout only begins at verse 9. We're gonna, we are going to scroll the verses down as I read them as well. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. He was asking for, for their cooperation in the arrest of any of the followers of the way, the way of Jesus and he found, that he found there. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell. He fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus. I am the one that you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. And so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. And this is, this is kind of where we, we left off last week. Him, this man, this, this man, this intense man, Saul who was, was feared and um, at the height of his strength in his, in his uh, adulthood. He's a, young, he's a young and strong man, an intellectually vigorous man. He is extraordinarily committed to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has tremendous animosity, as we've read, to the followers of the way because he sees them as a corrupting influence and uh, actually, worse than that, he sees them as a, as a threat and a, and a perversity. So he wants them removed. He becomes the point person for the, the desire to eradicate them. And it's on the way that he, he finds himself um, confronted by the living Jesus. And one of the things we know is that you know, he had, <laughs> this was not the way he had planned on entering the city. He, he, he was prepared to come in with full authority and power. And, and now he is blinded. The picture of him being led into the city, uh, he, he is utterly blind. He cannot see. And, and I think in some ways we talked about how that physical, natural blindness really did symbolize and reflect the spiritual blindness. Because later on in his life, he would say, you know what, I was a man. He goes, I was totally sold out. I was zealous. He goes, but my zeal was misdirected. It was a misguided zeal, and it was damaging. And now, you know, uh, he, he, as this supremely confident, self-assured man, is utterly incapable of making his own way. He has to be led by, a hand, by the hand of those he was leading until he arrives at, at a house. We know the name of the man whose house he was going to. 
It was a man whose name was Judas, Judas of Damascus, as he was known. He lived on the, the main thoroughfare that cut through Damascus, a street called Straight. It was a colonnaded uh, street that was known as the Via Recta. It, it was a house, we may assume, of someone of means. And Judas, no, no doubt, had perceived that. He was entertaining a guest, uh, a very important man who was also a very serious man. And to have that moment where he meets him and, and, and he sees Saul at his door and he is so different because he's literally being led by people into his house. And he, I imagine Judas says, well, uh, what, what happened to, to him? What, what, what is going on? I mean, how did, how, what? And they said it was an extraordinary thing. It's, it's hard to describe it. But um, he, just, he just wants to be in a room alone. He can't see. And so with, with that in mind, you know, we, we pick up at verse 9. We're told here that uh, he, remained, he remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat and he did not drink. So here he is waiting in the darkness. He's in, alone, solitary, cut, cutting himself off intentionally. Uh, he can't see. He, he is in the dark. He's confronted by a reality that he had not envisioned. He, he had the farthest thing on his mind was that Jesus was who he said he was. And now his world had been completely radically altered, turned literally upside down. And it no longer made sense. And I imagine him in these, in these moments trying to make sense of what had happened, what had been. For three days, we know, these three days would be kind of an interval of sorts for, for this man, a pause between what was and could never be again and what was yet to be. You have this little period these three days, and it's interesting because the three days, like the one, you know, whose light had blinded him, um, he enters into the grave in the same way. And he, and he, basically, I look at it like it's a perfect analogy of entering into a tomb. And here he is in the darkness of the tomb, and he's waiting for what will come next. And, and he refuses to eat, and he's in a prayerful place, and he's, it seems like he's, he's fasting. You know, fasting and prayer have a way of of focusing our attentiveness. And so he's trying to discern what, what has happened and what he's supposed to do. And then on the third day, something happens. We read about it in verse 10. It says that now there was a believer, a follower of Jesus in Damascus. His, the man's name was Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias in this vision. And in this, in this moment, he replied, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said to him, I want you to go over to, the, to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. And when you get there, I want you to ask for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. And he, he in fact, is praying to me right now. This is interesting, praying to me right now. And then, and then we see that Ananias looking. He says, well, well you know, um, oh, and the Lord goes on to say, I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias. I've shown him a vision of a man that, and given him a name, your name, and, it showed, and, and he senses that you are going to be coming in and you're going to lay hands on him, pray over him, touch him. It has significance. That was a practice rooted in the Older Testament. It was a way of identifying with something, and it was also a way of commissioning and exercising authority and blessing the laying on of hands had meaning. The touch itself conveyed something. And he says, I want you to pray over him. 
And, and when you do, he will be able to see again because right now he's, he's blind. Now, you would think that Ananias, committed follower, has this kind of deep impression, a vision that he gets. The names, it's very specific. You would think, all right, I'm on my way. No, no, no. Look what happens. But, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've, I've, he's having this conversation, this vision. He said, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He, his is a bad man. And he is authorized, and what's more, he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. And now, they, he has what I think of as, you know, are you, one of those, are you sure this is what you want me to do, Lord, moments, right? Where he goes, Lord, wait a second, wait a second, this is a dangerous man. He kills people who follow you. He's got a power to really hurt me. And, and, and he does it. What do, you, uh, do we have the right guy? And that's, that's sort of the picture here. And I was thinking about Ananias. And uh, I, I have, you know, obviously some places that I'd like to take us to before we're done. But let me just make a couple of little remarks about Ananias from what we've just read. Let me just put it, th- and very briefly look at them. As far as Ananias and who he, the kind of man that he was as a follower of Jesus, he was a, a, a person clearly who was open, number one, to the voice of the Lord. And what I mean by that is the, the idea that, that the Lord could converse with him in such a way was not shocking to him. And in fact, you know, Jesus, would later, Jesus said earlier in his ministry, he said, you know, my sheep know my voice and another they will not follow. They're implying that as you follow Christ, you begin to learn how to recognize his voice. And I'm, I'm suggesting that, you know, in Ananias' case, it was an obviously unusual moment. We would acknowledge that. It was a very exceptional moment. At the same time, let me suggest that he reminds us that the idea that the Lord speaks to us throughout our daily life is something that is not to be, to be feared, um, nor to be um, assumed that it can't happen. Because, I'll say this, part of my own life with the Lord, and, and, I, and I know that anyone who follows Jesus, there is something that the Lord wants us to be open to, and that is to his voice. And there are times the Lord will speak to us through his word. We might be reading his word, and it becomes a word for us. We sense the Lord is saying, now, you need to listen to this. I mean differently than the way you've listened to it before. Or if you, there might be times where you're moving through your day, and you sense that the Lord is saying to you, take a moment and talk to this person. Or, that, or perhaps leaving a conversation you've had, which maybe was serendipitous, it wasn't unexpected. All of a sudden, it could be at the workplace, could be on your way to work, could be, could be just with a neighbor. But you walk away from that and you go, and you, you sense the Lord saying to you, that wasn't just a coincidence. That conversation meant something. Or we might be on the verge of making a decision. It could be a bad decision. And we hear the Lord saying, don't do that. A, a very real strong sense of God's presence. Or move this way. What I'm suggesting is Ananias was not shocked by the idea that the Lord was real and interacting with him. But number two, notice this. As much as he was open to the voice of the Lord, he was also initially, we must acknowledge this, resistant and hesitant to do what the Lord was asking. So his first (laughs) response was, was not the courageous one. It wasn't absolutely, Lord, I'll go tell this man exactly what you wanted me to tell him. You know, I I look at this because... And I, and I actually appreciate him a little bit because I, can, I feel like we can relate to him because his first response is, Lord, that, that's really foolish. And this guy scares me. And I don't want to talk to him. 
Are you sure we're getting, I'm hearing you right here, right? There's this really sense of the point is that he, what I'm gonna say, he is no superhero of faith. He, he's a lot like us. He's an honest, committed follower of Jesus who is genuinely concerned and initially reluctant to risk his well-being. And so he pushes back a little bit, but thirdly and importantly, he is revealed thirdly as a person, a man who is willing to, when all is said and done, push past his fear and obey or do what the Lord is asking. And that is he agrees to become the vehicle that the Lord wants him to be. He steps past his fear and he begins to move into a place that, yes, you can see he doesn't want to do it, but he does it because he knows strongly the Lord is asking him to be courageous. And as he does it, you know what happens? It's just, it can happen to you and me as well. He becomes a mediator of the grace of God, a change agent that God wants to use to bring about a, a point of clarity and, and focused point. Now, let's, let's move forward. Let's look back at the passage again. Verse 15 says this, that, but the Lord said, no, 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 I want you to go. I want you to go. And then he says this, because Saul is my chosen instrument. I've, I've, I've called him specifically for a unique task. Now look at the task as described. He says, he's a chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Now that's a threefold uh, statement that's made. One, he's going to be a person who can communicate this message with his, his own Jewish people. He's going to declare Jesus is Messiah, Yeshua. He is, he is the promised one. That's what he's going to do. But what's going to be so unique about this man, the Lord says to, to Ananias, is he is going to be a person who, is going, who I'm going to use uh, to take this message to the, to the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world. In this case, it had to do predominantly with the Greco-Roman world, which was interacting with cultures and nations all over the world. And he says, I'm going to give him a unique capacity to take this message partly because of who he is and the way he's been raised in a bicultural way. A person fiercely Hebrew at the same time uniquely capable of communicating as a Roman citizen with the culture. At a critical time in history when transportation was because of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the, the peace, the enforced peace of Rome was actually something that was um, doable in a way that previous times in history was impossible. Now, I, I say that because then he was also told one more thing, and he's going to be used by, used by me to take this message of who I am, not just to his own Hebrew people, not just to the Gentile world, but he's going to also go before kings. He's going to go before people in, in high places of authority, which is interesting because Jesus is distinguishing between a, a, a group of people who have the ability to influence in large ways because of the power they possess. And He's, he's implying that this is a man who will not be intimidated by that process. And so you, know, you look at it, you go, wow, it's, it's, it's intense. It's great. I mean, those are, that's a great thing to say to someone. He, I'm going to tell him, look, God's going to use you to speak to your own people, but he's really going to use you to, to go on this great adventure, to be a missionary to other cultures. You're going to be able to share this gospel, this news of Christ, of who Jesus is with the Gentile world. And on top of that, he's going to take you before kings and people who have access to authority and power. You know, this is going to, it's exciting. And then he says, but I want you to say one more, let him know one more thing too. He says, look at that, and it's the following verse. I I'm also, I'm also want you to tell him this, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, the front three, yeah, but that one, wait a minute. I'm supposed to tell him that he's going to be a suffering man? Yeah, you need to tell him that, because I'm not selling him a bill of goods. I'm letting him know. It's not like Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring the suffering on him. What I'm saying is, 
there are going to be a cost attached to doing what I'm asking him to do. He's going to suffer. I need you to tell him that on the front end. That's intense. Those are deep. Now, look what happens. Verse 17. It says, says, so Ananias went and he found Saul. And he did as the Lord said. He laid his hands on him and he said, brother. This is great. He doesn't just say Saul. He says, and this is a very uniquely Christian term in the sense that it's, it's rooted in the early church. He says, brother Saul. And that, that was a, you know, when I, when I grew up, I grew up in a tradition where I was taught to, to talk to, to people, especially when they were older than me, I would say brother or sister. But I was reminded, again, that part of why we would do that is because it wasn't saying that we, we don't have our old family. That's, no. What it was saying was that, that you are welcomed into a family, the family of Jesus. And in a sense, we share something deep, deep, a common love for him that, that is, it is a way of connecting Saul to what they have been. Now, I say that because, you know, it's not to suggest that, you know, I get it. In the, in the larger framework of creation, we're all the children of God in a sense. I get that. But the Bible makes it clear that there is something unique about people who share a common love and faith and commitment to Jesus that we are, in a, in a way, a spiritual family. And that family has a way of connecting us to people all the way across the world. And from different cultures and different places, we share a common love for a common Savior that binds us together. We are, at the core, a spiritual family, brothers and sisters. And that's a beautiful principle to always remember. Now, he says to him, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. I love that. He says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you, who appeared to you on the road, he has sent me. He has sent me so that, one, you might regain your sight and also that you might experience his presence in a very different way, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says, instantly, something like scales. Evidently, there was a film or scar tissue or something that had, had you know, been a result of the, the, the bright light that he had seen had blinded him. And the Bible's way of describing it is almost like there were scales that fell off, like the shutters came down. And his eyes were opened up immediately, we're told, that he, he was able to see again. Three days, he hadn't seen anything. Utter darkness. And then he got up. And, he, and the first thing he does, we're told, is that he is baptized, which is also instructive because it's a reminder that in the early church, baptism was very important. You know, we have the, some who are being baptized if this evening. And there, there are times where we are reminded in the scriptures of the significance. See, baptism is a, is a principle rooted deeply in the Old Testament. And Paul and Saul understood it. He understood that when you were baptized into something, that you were identifying with it. And for the early church, baptism, of course, because Jesus said the one who believes and is baptized. It, Jesus himself modeled he was baptized in a great act of submission and humility by John, the one we call the Baptist. He's called that for a reason, because he liked to baptize people, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I say all that because Jesus, Jesus models it. He, he asks us to do it. And, and the first thing Saul does is what's like, he says, I'm gonna, I will be baptized. And, and in a way, it's like going down into the tomb, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the stone is rolled away. It, it, symbolizes, it symbolizes the fact that we are dying to who we were and, and we are now moving into a new place, a new beginning, a new life, and we're identifying ourselves with Jesus. There is a, a public profession, a community confession of what is an internal decision of faith. 
And it also has with it a spiritual dynamic overlay. So it's a very important principle. He, and then he says, and then it says that then after that, after that he goes and he, he eats. It says there he gets a meal and, and takes care of himself. Now, in the time that we have left, let me put it out this way. I mean, I love this passage. I do. I, I, to me, it's just got so much in it. And in the minutes that we have left, I just want to set some things in place. Hopefully, we'll talk about them, think about them, reflect upon them ourselves. But let me suggest firstly, just moving out of this, that there are going to be times when we are going to be brought into times of transition and God-ordained reordering. And here's the important phrase that distinguishes it. Those places are going to require us to be still and to reflect. That, that there are some places in our lives that the Lord brings us to where he intentionally brings us a place where we, we almost have to, to slow down and listen. In, Paul's, you know, in Saul's case, it, he literally was blind and still and sequestered. And so he's listening very intensely. He's trying to discern what God is saying to him about his life. And as he's listening, you know, it's, we're told that it's a literal darkness that was three days of prayerful waiting, that, that really it was a forced, what I'm saying is in his case, it was a forced transition of blindness. Now, some of us, we choose intentionally because we sense change is coming, and so we'll spend some time, if we're wise at times in our lives, pondering our path before the Lord. But in his case, he didn't have a choice. He was just right there. You know, and I'll tell you, waiting is not an easy thing to do. It's a hard thing. That's why a lot of us don't do We live in a very noisy culture. There's constant, and maybe more than ever, there's so much information flying around. It's so accessible in ways that were unheard of in previous generations. The amount of noise, and I mean clutter, I don't mean literal noise, that's true as well, but I'm talking about the noise that comes into our life. All the voices that are flying at us all the time, the accessibility that we now have to everything and then to be accessible. It has changed everything in significant ways. It, what it means is we have to be even more intentional about slowing down. Waiting, though, is, one, is sometimes, sometimes something that's extremely hard to do because our culture has created an expectation that mitigates against the idea of waiting for things. We want it now. We want it fast. If it's too slow, we want to get rid of it, get the faster one, right? And when that happens, you know, and, and, and so, but here's the deal. Life doesn't work that way. In life with God, there are times where we are brought into places where we are stopped in our tracks, and, and, and I, it might just be the nature of life. It could be a job transition. It could be a health issue. You know, I'll I tell you, I was thinking about this last night. We were talking about, it just kind of came up, the, the, the connection between waiting and patience. You know, patience is an interesting word. Today, we've softened the meaning of that word, but if you go back to the root of that word, the idea of patience is connected to the idea of enduring suffering. It really is, which is why when you go to a hospital, you sign up as a patient. You know what a patient used to do in a hospital? They were waiting because they were in need of having their suffering addressed, hence a patient. And I was thinking about this and how hard it is to wait and how hard it is to be patient, especially when we're suffering. And I found myself thinking about what I've been walking through my last three months. And uh, some of you know, I know not everybody does, and I'm certainly not saying this to gain sympathy, so please do not. I say that ahead of time, all right? But I, have had, I really hurt my back really bad three months ago. I was doing an exercise poorly. 
I, I, I violated a principle. I lost my concentration at a critical moment. And I also forgot how old I was. And uh, <laughs> so I'm thinking, OK, I know I really hurt myself in a different way, but I'll bounce back. Because usually a couple weeks, and if it's just a muscle thing, you know, I can start. I can, because I, I like to exercise. And, and, and so if I, if I get myself, you know, if I can just kind of wait this thing through for a couple weeks, and, uh, and then I just slowly start just doing stuff again so I don't lose my momentum. And so I've, I've got my plan. Just do what I always do. Well, it, 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 it you know, I, it didn't work out that way. Because I started getting worse. I said, well, I'm just going to, you know, and then I said, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of be patient with the process, kind of, you know. So I went ahead, did all my backpacking, I, I preaching, I, I did the Bible intensive, and I was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I didn't want to go to the doctors because I knew what they were going to say. You're going to need to get an MRI. Now, you see, I had had an MRI before, and I don't know if you've ever had one. But I remember vividly the first time I went to get it. You know, I didn't know how traumatic it was going to be for me. Because, I don't know, you, you, OK, I walked in. The first time I walked in to get my MRI, I had a cup of coffee. And I had no knowledge of what it was. I thought, oh, it's like an x-ray, you know? So I walked in. I sat down. I said, yeah, I'm here to get that MRI you know, on, my, on my shoulder. You know, I said, then all of a sudden, he says, well, go ahead and, and, and lie down. And, 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 then, and then all of a sudden, it's like I got strapped in. <laughs> on this table. And I said, and he goes, he goes, I go, this is what, he goes, yeah, you're going to need to be still. I go, oh. so he goes, and then I said, where am I going, what happened? What you're going to go into that tube. <laughs> and he goes, oh, and here, grab this. And I said, what's this? He goes, oh, it's like, if you get scared, <laughs> press the button. And, and then we'll, we'll get you out of there. I said, really? I mean, I, OK, well, all right. So I get strapped in there. And I tell you, I, I've been in small spaces before. I never had any reaction to it. I get in there, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm into the tomb. Into the tomb is what it was. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm telling you. I just, it, it was like, I went, press the button, right? Get back out. I mean, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. This. This is not what I was expecting. I go, this is intense, man. Like, this is intense. I don't like this. I go, do other people experience what I'm experiencing? My heart was red. I was like, I was weird. I was looking up this space. I was hearing a ding, ding, ding. I was just like, it was like, and I felt trapped. I felt confined. I wasn't used to it. I pulled myself out, and I was all hyped up. I had been drinking my coffee, walking in there. I did everything you're not supposed to do. So I, I so he goes, now listen. He goes, look. He goes, look, it happens all the time to people. He goes, that's why they have these open MRI things, but they're not as good. He goes, but here's the deal. You don't have to go back in. People don't do it all the time. He goes, but if you do go back in and, and you do the button one more time, that's it. Because <laughs> there are other people who need their MRI behind you. <laughs> I'm like feeling, this is really intense. So I get in there. You know, I mean, I'm quoting Bible verses. I'm thinking of my message. I'm just closing my eyes. I was doing everything I could, right? I, I barely, and I mean barely, made it through. I know, I'm being honest. I barely made it through. I came out of there. I was like traumatized. I had always used to make fun of people, I have to say it, who would, maybe that's not the best word. I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand how people get panic attacks. I really didn't, you know? And all of a sudden, I was telling my wife, I'm sitting there, I was two weeks later, I'm in a movie theater. And all of a sudden, it's a big theater. All of a sudden, it's like, I'm thinking about that MRI. 
And all of a sudden, that same feeling, my heart starts, boom, 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 boom. I start, and I go, I gotta get out of here, I gotta get out of here. And I'm telling myself, I can't do it, I can't do it. If I start doing this, then I'm just gonna give into it every time. And so this is really, and it was intense, you know. I, I'm saying, I said all that because the idea of having to go back into the MRI for me was not a joyous thing, but I knew my back was hurting. And in fact, it ended up showing that I did have, for those three months, you know, I had some type of a, depending on how you describe it, a, you know, a, a herniated disc that had been bulging through and protruding into my nerves, and that's why I was feeling it more. Still, you know, and so I had to get better. I was trying to be patient with the process, but I didn't want to submit to, the, to it because there was an, I honestly, we, there are some situations where we can't, I go, why do I have to get the MRI? I knew why, but I just asked it anyway. Because we really can't know what's wrong. Until we know what's wrong, we really don't know how to treat it. And there's a spiritual principle. There. I mean, this whole thing was loaded with principles. What happens when you get sloppy? How you can injure ourselves, the idea of being patient, get, going to a hospital, submitting to the process, how the suffering actually is protecting us because the body is trying to tell us we're injured. It's actually God's way of pain as a gift. I know we don't want to hear that. This is a whole other subject. But we wouldn't know if we were about to hurt ourselves if it wasn't for the, rea the, the ability to feel pain. Much injury is the body's way of compensating for pain. The pain we're getting is because there's an injury. Anyway, that's the whole point being is there are times where the Lord brings us to places where we get to learn about ourselves, about what we're afraid of, about how to move through that, how to shift our attitudes around, how to have more courage in our lives. Many, many principles. It leads perfectly into the second one, which is this. And I'll just try to do as rapidly as I can, but I, I don't want to undermine it either. There are going to be times, secondly, when we're going to need other to really honestly we're gonna to need to submit to the prayer of other people and there and I would even say to their touch I, I what I'm suggesting is Saul was prayed for by Ananias and the Lord you know the Lord could have simply isn't it true the Lord could have simply said look you to Saul three days you're freed up now you can see I mean didn't he, whoa, 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 whoa. why why does the Lord need Ananias I mean God the Lord light blinded him. He could set him free again. He did it all. Why, why, why Ananias? Why, why does he simply? Why does he have to be prayed over by another person? What's more, it's important for. I think it's important for Saul because he needs to understand something. That that it's important that he is going to humbly submit to the prayer of another. That's a big deal. Uh, uh, he's going to have to. His healing is going to come to the to the touch of a brother and a laying on of hand. His healing comes to him by virtue of that. And I, and I think from the, that was a reminder to Saul from the outset that he was connected, listen, to others. That, this, that he was part of a body of which no part of that body would be underestimated or should be. That everybody has significance. And that this is not about you doing the solo thing. It's about you being connected to a people a body, the body of Christ, as he would later say, it is a wonderful thing made up of many members. And just as it, it works in beautiful symmetry and, and sometimes doesn't work but is trying to help itself, so is the body of Christ, an imperfect but beautiful thing. And I think there are going to be times in the Christian life, in fact, I know it, where, where some of our healing, some of our breakthroughs, some of our growth is only going to come as a result of the prayers of others. That, that perhaps, I, I thought, well, why is that, Lord? Why can't I just get this, this, this thing in, but just you and me? 
And there are some things that I do need to work out with him by myself. But there's a lot of other things that the way I don't get it. You know, why do we need Ananias? Because the Lord is reminding us that there is something about humility. There's something about vulnerability. There's something about being tender to one another that is part of this life in Christ. And that's why we always talk about getting below the surface of simply just attending, which is a good thing. But the Lord really does want community. That's why we talk about the power and the value of, of having, uh, you know, uh, being part of a ministry or serving or being in a small group. I can tell you in my own life, it, there have been my, the group that I'm in, it, it's so important to me. There have been times where I've, it's been such a blessing to just, just pray for one another. And, and there's a power in that. that I, the, there's, a, there's a resetting of things, a healing of things, sometimes actually a dropping of my blindness because we all have what is in the Greek word that I, I remember from one of my professors saying, you all have a scotoma. He's talking about a blind spot. He said, don't ever forget that. And a lot of times the, the Lord uses others to remind us of what we're not seeing. And, and, and that is where often, you know, I, don't, I doubt, listen, I doubt Saul ever forgot the day the hands, that, that, that he, that I guess the day the hands of a man named Ananias touched his head and gave him his sight again. Last thing I'll say is this, and I love this piece, is that all of us, listen, are going to need each other to help interpret our experience. Don't miss this phrase. Great, I mean, to interpret our experience. Saul was blinded by Jesus, right? He was waiting for Jesus to give him instructions. And as much as Saul pondered and, and his path and his experience, it was not just, the healing wasn't just about Ananias. It was also the interpreting of what he was experiencing. You see what I'm saying? Basically, in the big picture, Saul would change the world. Ananias, comparatively speaking, he's a much smaller figure. And yet God uses, it, uses Ananias to set in context what Jesus wanted to do in Paul's life. And that means that you and I are going to have to be open to God in at least two ways. One, we need to be open to the touch or the, to the words that come from others. That's going to require humility and vulnerability. And then at the same time, some of us are going to have to be open to being, to being willing to speak up and to, and to step forward and to pray. And that's going to require courage like Ananias. And this is how the body of Christ works together. In one case, it involves humility. In another, it involves courage. You know, as I look back on my life, as I pan back over my life, I, I, I'm reminded, I was reminding myself of the people who, who helped interpret my experience, set it into context for me. And, and, and in my case, many of them were pastors and teachers that I remember listening to. I had a calling, but at the same time, it was others. Sometimes things I was reading that helped place it into a context and interpreted it, just as Ananias was. It's a beautiful thing when, as we are making our way into the way, others show us the way that we should go, that Christ speaks. Let me pray. Lord, what a beautiful thing it is to be able to follow you. What a... What a gift. Uh, I pray that we would increasingly see, by your grace, things you want us to see. And Lord, also provide the power in our lives increasingly to, to let go of the things you're, that are pulling us down and backwards and holding us back. Perhaps sometimes they are, they, are, they are paradigms of interpreting our life that are no longer capable of taking us to the places you want us to go in you. And so I pray that you would keep always a spirit of humility in us, Lord, that reminds us that, that oftentimes the way you mediate your grace is in community. There is much healing and growth that can only come that way. 
And I thank you that you reminded Saul of that. I pray that you remind us of that as well. And most of all, I thank you for your grace, the way you love us, when we, especially when we know we are least deserving of it. And as we close the service in our time of giving, and we honor you that way in our tithes and our offerings, we also pray this closing song will be a fitting conclusion, but that this word would also continue on. And so I pray for your blessing in Jesus' name, grace upon grace, amen. continue on. And so I pray for